what I'm saying is NHS Tayside Management have allowed Professor Elgemel to continue butchering all these patients as far back as 1997. That was Jules Rose, and we'll hear more from her and the campaign for an inquiry into disgraced Dundee surgeon Sam Elgemel shortly. Hello and welcome to The Stushy, the Scottish politics podcast from DC Thompson that helps you be better briefed. I'm Andy Phillip and on this episode I'll be joined by Justin Bowie and Adele Merson to dig into the latest political intrigue, yet another round of budget announcements and the important stories catching our eyes. This week we take a closer look at the men and women who are literally knocking on Parliament's door to try to get some more answers and justice for their shocking treatment at their most vulnerable times. If you aren't already aware, this concerns Professor Sam Elgemel. He was a surgeon at NHS Tayside who harmed patients for years. He was head of neurosurgery there and he went on to perform spinal operations too, with sometimes terrible consequences. The health board appears to have moved on and the Scottish government seems content to draw a line under it. But as we find out this week, Patients keep coming forward, and they absolutely do not think this is over. A considerable group of them were at Parliament in Edinburgh two days before this recording. Justin Bowie caught up with one, Jules Rose, who had a tear gland removed instead of a brain tumour. Justin started by asking her to explain what happened. In 2013, I was diagnosed with a rare brain tumour, and in the August of 2013, he, he told me he removed, 100% removed the brain tumour, However, it turned out that he hadn't removed the brain tumour at all and he removed my tear gland instead. But he lied and tried to cover that up. And then I subsequently then went in for further surgery in the December 2013 for the brain tumour to actually be removed, which he did do the second time. What I didn't know at that time was that Professor Elgemel was under supervision. Now, it subsequently... Um, being brought to light as well that the supervision only consisted of post-ward round operations only. There was no intraoperative supervision at all. He'd been highlighted by uh, concerns and the Tayside had instructed the Royal College of Surgeons to conduct an investigation into his malpractice, into the concerns of his malpractice. So given there have been a number of people, a lot of people affected by this in a similar way to you, what do you think a government inquiry could do and why do you think there needs to be a Scottish government inquiry into this? So John Sweeney stated in the First Minister questions last week when my MSP Liz Smith, who has been 100% supportive of me, she asked for, you know, the answer for a, we were pushing for a public inquiry. Now, John Sweeney, and I quote, said, these issues have thoroughly been examined by the Royal College of Surgeons. Now, the Royal College of Surgeons did conduct an investigation. However, this investigation was purely on the malpractice of Professor Elgemel. I've subsequently had an independent report which was commissioned by the Scottish Government for the investigation into my patient care during my time at NHS Tayside. And it has came to light that there has been significant management failures and the lack of clinical governance within NHS Tayside. So basically what I'm saying is NHS Tayside management have allowed Professor Elgemel 
to continue butchering all these patients as far back as 1997. So basically, the Royal College of Surgeons report does not cover at all the significant failures of the management practices and the lack of clinical governance which allowed Professor Eljamel to continue doing what he, he was doing. So this is why we need a public inquiry to get to the root cause and get the answers as to where, when, how and why this was allowed to happen. You were all gathered outside Parliament today. Have you been able to meet with anyone from the Scottish Government? And if so, what did they say to you? Were you given any confidence in what they said? Yes, I was invited to meet with Marie Todd just before I met the other former patients outside um, this afternoon. And um, she just asked me how, she asked me my story. She asked how they could help me. She advised me to go back to Tayside and I refused. I said, no, I've already explained that is like sending me back to the perpetrator and that I quote Grant Archibald, the chief executive of NHS Tayside. He advised me in the meeting that I had with him at the end of June that Humza Yousaf, the cabinet secretary for health and social care, was his boss. So I have made it clear um, today in my meeting with the minister that I want Humza Yousaf to sort this out. The buck stops with him. If the government decide not to hold an inquiry going forward, despite the pressure that's been put on them, what will your next steps be and what would your message to the government be? Uh, they, they might just refuse at the moment to hold a public inquiry, but we will continue to put the pressure on. We have, we've only just scratched the surface in terms of campaigning for a public inquiry. Two weeks ago, um, when this the next step come out in, into the media, I've had over a dozen patients contact me that have been significantly, and I mean significantly, have suffered life-changing injuries that Professor Eljamel has butchered them. Um, and these patients keep coming forward. So we are vastly growing in the strength and our numbers to, to continue campaigning. And as I explain, explained to Miss Todd today in my meeting with her, I liken myself, Jules Rose, to, as to NHS Tayside, as what Anne Williams was to the Hillsborough disaster. That's how serious I am. And I have got 100% backing from all the other former patients that have been harmed. What are your feelings towards NHS Tayside and all of this? You obviously take quite a negative view of them. Do you feel they're trying to hide from accountability? Absolutely. They can run, but they can't continue hiding for much longer. I explained in my meeting with them that I had lost trust with them. They explained to me that they understood that and they did ask me, and again I quote Grant Archibald, he asked me to give them a chance. Now, I gave them a chance. And I have subsequently wrote back to Humza Yousaf and explained in my email to him that I feel that I have just been urinated on. What was the point in having that meeting with NHS Tayside when they failed to deliver what they promised me within the two-week deadline that they asked me, give them a chance? I did. I tried to work with them, but they failed me yet again. 
Do you feel like support among the wider community is growing or more people becoming aware of this? You know, how have you tried to make the kind of wider Tayside community aware of what's happened here? Sure, yeah. This is growing significantly, you know, by the day. I have a private Facebook group for former patients and their families. It's a support group. It's where we will plan our next move. Um, I have set up a change.org petition that can be signed online that is steadily growing now every day I am 100% confident with the support that we have with the wider community you know this isn't just um, consolidated to around Tayside now this this is growing I was just speaking there to a former patient who told me their relative in Australia and a few um, friends in Australia had signed the campaign had signed for the the petition. So, yep, equally confident and uh, highly confident that this is growing with the support. Obviously, there was a lot of you gathered outside Parliament today. How has it been to have other people tell you their stories? And in many cases, those stories have been similar to you. Has it been maybe reassuring in a way to realise that you're not alone in all this and that many people have been wronged by Dr El Jamil? You know, it, it's not reassuring for me, but I think it's reassuring for the former patients because they felt they were in isolation. They felt they they were the only ones, you know, but I've been campaigning this or I've been investigating this situation with NHS Tayside and Professor Eljamel for a few years now. So I know that there has been, you know, significant number of patients that have suffered under the hands of this butcher. So, but I think it's been more welcoming for them to realise that they're not alone in all of this. And if I can just describe it like any rogue practitioner with ill intent that intends to deliberately harm patients such like as Harold Shipman could have a field day in Scotland. The likes of Professor Elgemela successfully managed to harm and butcher patients without it being noticed or stopped. And I think that's a message that the, the former patients are now understanding they're not in isolation and this has been going on, but they are now understanding that it's NHS Tayside that could have stopped this. But they have allowed this butcher of a surgeon to continue out, sorry, to continue practising with this malpractice and continued acts of harm. If a government inquiry is held, at the end of its conclusion, what would justice be to you? What would constitute justice? We are seeking for those to be held to account. There needs to be people um, to be accountable for what's happened to, and I'm talking dozens of patients, so that would be the justice for us. We need to get the answers as to why, how, what and when went on so that we can then begin our healing to know that there is people and the organisation, the trust, has been held to account. Justin, there was some incredibly tough campaigning rhetoric there from, from Jules. I mean, I don't know about you, but that is a campaigner that I would not particularly want to go head to head with i mean is this is the scottish government likely to be doing anything more on this well on wednesday evening after we had spoken to jules whom's have said that there were no plans for a government inquiry the government stance is that this is the responsibility of nhs side now but the patients of professor el jamel have pointed out the sheer scale of what's happened here 
perhaps warrant something a bit more than merely the health board dealing with this now. So it, it seems that these campaigners have no plans to go anywhere and this is going to be a real headache for the government if they decide not to pursue an inquiry going forward. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you were with a couple of the other politicians. Um, Liz Smith was one, um, Mid-Scotland and Fife MSP, she was with the group. What, what sort of pressure can people like that put on, on, the, on the, the government from the backbenches, maybe? Well, I suppose someone like Liz Smith, who has been a key advocate for some of the victims of Professor Elgemel, can just continue raising it in Parliament. Obviously, you saw the campaigners outside Parliament. There was a big group of them. They can continue to gather. But if the government don't wish to pursue an inquiry, I suppose they could, in rather crude terms, just ignore campaigners. But if this is continually getting brought up at Holyrood, it's going to become a much bigger political headache in that regard. And there's certainly a few MSPs in the area who have who've highlighted this in the past. Liz Smith has been the foremost among them. But as pressure builds and as the campaigners continue to kind of highlight their cause, I think it's going to be harder and harder for the government just to do nothing here. Yeah, there's a lot of talk about passing of the buck and all this kind of thing and and uh, that was made very clear in the in the sort of the timeline of the story there and just as we were setting out to record that interview and and and, and put this episode together another man got in touch with us uh, by email just this morning and he alleges yet more um, injuries and long-term problems which he claims were at the the hands of this particular surgeon when he was operating out of Dundee it's um, absolutely something that uh, we here and our health reporter colleagues will continue to pursue and it is one that to keep your eyes on and for more coverage and to get the um, full background stories you can of course head towards the the courier and check out all the the content there okay it's now one day since jeremy hunt set out his latest spending plans to fix the chaos of the short-lived liz truss era if you can call a few weeks an era now, as always, the Commons cheered and jeered along with the Chancellor as he let out a flurry of claims over numbers. And the dust settling now, and we've had a bit of time to look into it. Adele Merson was analysing the implications of this one. So let's cut through the claims a wee bit and move on. What does it mean for the pound in our pockets? Yeah, so I think undoubtedly the uh, biggest takeaway from the budget was um, some forecasting that was done by the a Office for Budget Responsibility who found that disposable income is going to drop over the next two years by 7%. So that's going to be the biggest fall since records began and it's going to be roughly, equivalent, I think, the same as standards in 2013. So I guess for your average person, they're going to feel that they're, instead of what most of us want, which is to feel we're moving on in life, you're going to perhaps feel like you've gone backwards a bit. Um, and we're going to, uh, they're also you know, predicting that we're going to be entering I think we are in a period of recession now, so I think that's going to really impact. I think that's a key element because that is, yeah, how much you have in your pocket, you know, to spend on on kind of day to day stuff, the treats that you like, the things that make your life worth yeah. living, that kind of thing. Is it's all going to be a lot more stretched, I guess, and you're going to have to be a lot more financially prudent. Yeah, and this is all coming as uh, we've been getting warnings about inflation going up and and more people worried about their mortgage rises, and of course there was a lot of damage done. Um, in the past few weeks, which Jeremy Hunt was was kind of trying to pick, 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 pull back together again. Politically, it was pretty chaotic. I mean, it feels like in some degree he kind of wants a pat on the back for just being better than his predecessor. I mean, um, Justin, did he did he do enough to, to warrant any of that praise? I suppose in some regards, it feels a bit like there's an adult at the table 
I think beforehand, the budget or the mini budget of Quasi Quarteng back in September, it just felt incredibly reckless. It felt like someone who had stepped up to a role they didn't quite understand and they didn't really realise the magnitude of what they would do would involve. I suppose at least Jeremy Hunt, he's quite an experienced head in cabinet. He's been around a long time. He perhaps understands, quote unquote, the markets a little bit better in that regard as well. But if you're an average person, you're still going to be hit by these cuts. You're still going to be hit by these tax rises. And while Jeremy Hunt may want to distance himself from Liz Truss and Quasi Quarting, people will right, rightfully point out he's still of the same party. He's still of the party that has presided over the past 12 years. And so, so yeah, that, that, that kind of attempt to distance and that attempt to seem like the most sensible figure in the room is only going to go so far. You know, there's only so much you can really praise a politician for doing the bare minimum by understanding the job. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. I mean, and then if you look outside the, the comments, it's interesting, again, for people like Douglas Ross, the, the leader of the Scottish Conservative Party, he's had a tough time effectively having to bend to whatever weather wafts up from Westminster. He, he He's praised this budget, but it, it comes with what the SNP um, and Nicola Sturgeon in, in Parliament the other day was calling austerity. So it's a, a tough act for for um, Douglas Ross to sort of get behind this. Or are, are things calmer for, for Douglas in, in Holyrood now, Adele, do you think? It has become perhaps a little bit of a running joke how, you know, how much he kind of flip-flops between positions. It does seem strange that he can go from praising the last budget, which was so totally different completely from, I mean, this budget effectively, you know, was the opposite in many ways. Um, to now backing this one but personally I think that I mean who knows medium to longer term like a lot can change quite quickly but um, it certainly seems that things for everyone have sort of calmed down a little bit I mean Jeremy Hunt was we're saying he was you know trying to position it as perhaps a more kind of um, less reckless budget but at the same time I did notice there was quite a lot of deflecting away entirely from his party towards you know, I guess the international external factors. He kept mentioning mm -hmm. the COVID pandemic. He kept mentioning the situation in Ukraine and um, the situation in other countries. I mean, you probably have to drill down into those stats as to whether he picked favourable stats. He probably did. But, uh, you know, comparing it to um, countries such as Germany and, and trying to almost make out like, look, there's lots of countries in the same boat and this is all out with our control. So I think that's another tact that they're taking, trying to position it more as external international factors than also just the chaos of his government as well so i think things will perhaps start to be slightly calmer i don't think they could be any more chaotic so i don't know what, no. if that's saying much no it's interesting you pointed out germany there as well because it's, um in the office for budget responsibilities documents i think it was them in particular but there was a there was a graphic attached to all of this and it, it showed a sort of scale of all the other countries and yeah germany um is is probably the only one he could really have picked as as being similar to the uk and in, in going the wrong way or whatever but the absolute vast majority of the other countries on that list were forecast uh growth and of course every single one of those countries was in the european union so there's there's a massive brexit signpost over all of this as well um which i mean you i think only the most ardent Brexit supporter could possibly um, avoid drawing a line directly from that to this. But in, in amongst all of that, of course, the Chancellor also um, 
stuck a big headline figure on a little present for Scotland, which was £1.5 billion. That was generated because of his spending decisions on health and education in England. Those areas are, of course, the responsibility of the Scottish Parliament in Scotland. So you get a little extra cash generated for every pound spent south of the border. And the cold reality, of course, being that one hand gives, the other takes away. And that is something that John Swinney, this uh, acting finance secretary in Scotland, will have to deal with in December. Um, He's also going to have to look at changes that the Chancellor set out on tax, which is a sticking point. Scotland at the moment would be out of step, so wealthier people may be taxed less. It's unthinkable, really, that John Swinney would allow that situation to continue, do you think? I mean, Adele, do you, what, what kind of what kind of problems is John Swinney in particular going to have to grapple with when he comes to set the Scottish budget in December? Uh, many problems, I guess. Uh, you know, they were making clear yesterday that, yeah, they think this is a return to austerity and that he has had no choice but to make savings. I think it was of more than £1 billion. They're kind of making... The two governments are effectively arguing about you know, there's this 1.5 million, but inevitably the Scottish government go back and say, well, it's not really because they're saying their budgets are uh, being impacted so much by by the inflation uh, that I think there's going to be quite a back and forth over the next few weeks over exa- and a lot of teasing out of exactly what it means. I mean, we had a briefing with the uh, UK government yesterday, journalists did, and there was a real lack of detail in terms of what this means percentage-wise, uh, for the budget each year um i think that information was still kind of to be drilled down or to be released anyway and uh yeah he's going to have to act in taxes as i discovered yesterday you know they're divided quite uh some are controlled by the uk government some are controlled by the scottish government it's quite uh, tricky in a way to work out exactly the implications immediately but that's now his task is to see yeah. whether he will have to follow suit. I mean, in some cases, like disability benefits, you, you can't see any other option but for them to also operate those because that you know that, that doesn't look good if you're not um, following the UK government on increasing mm-hmm. benefits for disabled people. So I think in, in some circumstances like that, they'll have really almost no option but to, but to do the same. The tax thing's interesting too, because remember after, under the Liz Truss project, it was a situation briefly where wealthy people were going to be taxed quite heavily in Scotland but not south of the border and it came with that crazy few days where people started saying well that's it all the wealthy people in Scotland they're just going to go and buy houses in Berwick-upon-Tweed and that's you know game over um has there been a clamor for English millionaires to start eyeing up property in Eyemouth maybe it was just a whole load of nonsense who knows <laughs> but I suppose that's one for another day we'll, we'll see let's see what's when he has in mind anyway beyond the budget it's been another big week of news outside the political bubble. So let's turn our attention now to the big stories elsewhere. From budgets to infrastructure, Adele, you've been looking at the long-running saga of how people get from A to B on national trunk roads that are still waiting to be completed, as promised. What's going on? Uh, I feel like every week I'm speaking about the A96 at the moment. I'll actually be surprised if I see it jeweled by the time I retire. But uh, yeah, the latest... You're, you're going to retire? <laughs> yeah, perhaps not ever. Uh, the the latest of that is that there has been... We've been trying to drill down to exactly what this um, 
there's an environmental review due at the end of the year on whether to well what we believed was whether to find out whether there's a recommendation to dual to fully dual or not to fully dual the a96 um I, I received a bit of a strange uh statement from transport scotland which for the first time that i was aware of called called it an initial appraisal said that they would have an initial appraisal done by the end of the year so that automatically got my my senses tingling and I uh, said to them you know does this mean that there does that still include a recommendation either way for the future of the road and was told that you know no more detail could be provided at, at that time so we're clearly quite in the dark as to exactly what this document will contain you know will it be quite woolly will it will it just be a general sort of here's the findings of the consultation or will it actually contain a recommendation it is anyone's yeah. guess right now yeah and and people might think ah oh, a road a96 that doesn't affect me but it was a, a government promise that um every city in scotland the main the major cities i think that they, they mentioned which includes aberdeen and inverness would be connected by dual carriageways and whether you agree that that's a good idea or not it was a government promise and then just to go back to the budget a little bit um in the south of scotland the uk government kind of stepping on you know, tanks on the lawn type stuff on the a75 which is runs right the way through the scottish secretary alistair jack's backyard almost um you know they, they can see that there's um infrastructure projects not being delivered or that it could be delivered and they're starting to sort of muscle in there so there is problems ahead for the scottish government if if big things like this including the a9 inverness perth and, and further don't get completed or they they claim there's no money because the uk government could just pick another fight over devolution and step in justin you've been looking at another national story with um which we may have kind of slipped under the radar a little bit i think as it as it drags its way through parliament so yes i have been looking at the smp's plans for a national care service so this was a key commitment of nicola sturgeon's government in the run-up to the last election and essentially the smp wanted to take personal and social care services and merged them into a big national service, not dissimilar in model to the NHS. But I suppose the similarities to the NHS kind of end at the point of the idea, because when you dig down into it, the concerns that a lot of key stakeholders in this have is that there is just a utter lack of detail as to what this will involve. I spoke to Robert Kilgour, who is a care home boss in Perthshire and in Aberdeenshire and the Highlands as well. He basically said that he's not against the idea in principle. He's, he's not opposed to the, the notion of centralising how care services are managed. But he feels that the SNP are just ploughing ahead with this without the kind of necessary detail. And that was a similar theme that came from local councils, from health and social care partnerships, and from some NHS boards as well. They say that there is a lack of detail as to how, how it will be done. They also feel there's a lack of analysis as well as to why this structural change is needed. So I suppose looking at it in a wider political sense, this being a key pledge of the SNP is something that would be a bit of a key legacy thing for Nicola Sturgeon if it goes through, if, if, if she steps out of power in say three, four, five years or beyond that, in, in time to come, if we have a national care service, it could be seen as one of her big kind of achievements of government. But the problem is, it almost feels as if the SNP are then trying to fit in the idea of the service they want and just make it work no matter what and they kind of want to to get through the bill and then the details will come 
The concern for yeah. a lot of the key stakeholders is here that once the bill is through, they don't know how it's then going to work. And when it's something like social care, it's not something you can just bulldoze on with without detail. Yeah. Um, and of course, a lot of this has its roots in the pandemic. And there was um, lots of concerns about how how pr the private split and the, the um, publicly controlled split over care homes was going to be dealt with in the future. But yeah, um, Kevin Stewart's got a, a tough old job on his hands to steer this one through Parliament. And we were talking about this elsewhere as well, but the National Care Service, it feels almost like this was something that Nicola Sturgeon herself had her eyes firmly set on as a bit of a legacy because um, it's 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 something, I mean, you could argue the point here a bit, but when we move, when we're looking back on this whole era, assuming that um, the Supreme Court in the next couple of days don't say, I sure have a referendum in October and um, Nicola Sturgeon somehow oversees uh, the creation of an independent state. That would be a legacy. But what what else is there in the in the cupboard? Is this is this the thing that Nicola Sturgeon really needs is a legacy piece? Well, I think in some regards, yes. You know, the SNP have always prided themselves on their record in health and education. They always say that that's the kind of key areas they want to focus on. You know, I suppose essentially making Scotland a better place for people to live and being a contrast to the Conservative government down south who they see as more callous and not caring about kind of the, the more vulnerable people in society and as you say the SNP argue that independence is a way to achieve that they think independence is the way to a better future but as you say the Supreme Court ruling is coming on Wednesday it seems unlikely we, we don't know yet they, they could surprise us but it seems unlikely the Supreme Court are going to approve an independence vote that could then kick the independence can down the road for several years and I suppose in the meantime, as a party that's now been in government for 50, 15 years, the SNP will want to say, look, here is a key policy at the moment. Yes, our budgets are stretched. Yes, our finances are tight. But we are still delivering for Scotland. We are still doing this. But if they can't get it, then that's going to be a very tough ask for them. Yeah, you, you mentioned education there. I mean, they may well pride themselves on that. But that was something that Nicola Sturgeon said she should be judged on. And I mean, by any measure, they've had a tough old time trying to put a, a happy gloss on on education policy over the years so yeah um the national care service was i think being badged up very clearly as this is going to be something long long term making people think like the nhs anyway there's going to be plenty more for that to run on and that's it for this week thanks to adele merson justin bowie guest jules rose producer morvin mcintyre and of course to you for listening We'll be back next week with more, but until then, and even after then, pick up or log on to The Courier, The Press and Journal, and all of our news brands, so that you can be better briefed. The Stushi is the politics podcast from DC Thompson, designed to help you understand the implications of what happens in Holyrood, Westminster, and our communities, so that you can be better briefed. Don't miss an episode by following the Stushy today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And if you know folks like you who want to understand politics in Scotland a little better, suggest they tune in or follow Stushy Scott on Twitter and Facebook. And stay even more up to date on local and Scottish news by subscribing to The Courier or Press and Journal, where you can get one month of unlimited access for just £1. Check the episode notes for details and terms.